Welcome to the Book Show Extra podcast, which includes material that wasn't in the RTE Radio 1 version of the show. Wexford author Owen Colfer has sold over 25 million copies of his books, including his immensely popular Artemis Fowl series. 2020 sees the characters coming to life on the big screen in a film directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's also going to mark the publication of Owen's first fantasy novel for adults. I went to visit him in his creative hub, the shed at the end of his garden. Own first things first, yeah. tell me a little bit about where we are. Well, we're in my office, oh, uh, our, the architects would call it a writing space, and you called it, quite meanly I thought, a lair, suggesting I'm a supervillain of some kind. It looks like a lair. It is, and I would, pre- I would press this ejector seat button and you'll get out of here. So, no, it's a, it's, I've wanted something like this for about... 15 years but I was finally able to get find two guys to make it for me and it's it really is beautiful I mean I absolutely love it, it, it it's amazing and this is my first time in here maybe give us a little sense of it because this is down the bottom of your garden yeah immediately above our heads there is an angled mirror yeah maybe explain that sounds that. creepy now it does. when you say it like that the idea is that uh, we are very close to the sea uh, and just down the end of the road it is sea point where I swim. So uh, in theory, on a clear day, you can lie on this little daybed here, which is beautiful oxblood leather, and you can, the mirror allows you to see the ocean. Um, now, I've only had that about three or four times. It's rare that you can do that. But in theory, if I go for a swim, Jackie could come out here and check I'm actually swimming and not gambling or something <laughs> by, by looking at the roof. But it is, it's just amazing. And uh, you just feel like, I mean, I've, sometimes I actually feel like a proper writer when I'm out here. <laughs> I, I think this is one of the, the cleanest writing spaces I've, I've yeah. ever been in as well, because oh, there are some shelves with editions of your own books on them yeah. and some other books as well. Uh, your desk is rigorously clean apart from yeah. the, the computer screen. And you're overlooked by not one, but two separate images of David Bowie. Is there a reason for that? Uh, well, Bowie is a big hero of mine. So he would be like maybe Elvis was to the previous generation. My friend Tony Di Terlizzi, who's a, an extremely well-known writer and illustrator from the States, was putting out these prints and he, they were all gone before I found out about them. And so then I just cravenly begged and he did one more for me and uh, he just put in the gold leaf but that's uh, how you know it's an original and uh, it's it's a semper semper mutantum i think which means always forever changing forever changing and that was bowie's motto a kind of would almost apply to you and your yeah. career as well well it people say that but really if you dig down all i'm changing is genre uh, it's all about relationships between possibly wacky characters but I come from a, a large family of Irish boys and um, that was kind of how we grew up but everything was a bit mad in a good positive way uh, so a lot of it if you take away the fairy helmet or the wings or the dragon's fire you will find a Colfer brother underneath there um, that I've taken their personality and exploded if you like and now I've moved on to my own kids so Poor old Finn and Sean are now the, the Fowl Twins. Um, I don't know how they feel about that yet. That the first book is that they haven't seen the event. Because I do tease them quite a lot in the event. 
so I'm trying to avoid bringing them to that event. <laughs> so so far so good, but uh, they're kind of they're used to it in a way. They just they're resigned to being the butt of jokes and, but they're always jokes that really I'm the butt of, and they end up being the heroes. So that's as long as I keep that pattern up, I'm okay. I want to go back to Wexford because we're yeah. sitting in Dublin. Um, but obviously you're from Wexford. You've lived in yeah. a lot of different places around the world. But Wexford is somewhere that you still seem to continue to come back to, not yeah. just personally, but culturally as well. Yeah. Because frequently you're there doing events. You have yeah. plays that are brought there. Uh, you want to be part of the cultural life still yeah. in that part of the world. Is that important? Very important. Uh, Billy Roach said, or to paraphrase Billy Roach, he said, you know, a man without his hometown is nothing. And uh, I do subscribe to that to a certain extent. I do think it, it, we are all becoming more international, uh, inevitably, and that's good in some ways. But I do think sometimes the culture of small towns suffers uh, I really like Wexford. I think it is a real cultural hub. I grew up inside that cultural hub where we were taught to believe that art was very, very important. Uh, whether you were a singer or a writer or an actor or anything like that. You could be all three. And uh, even now, Wexford is like this little principality that has its own really healthy local scene for, for bands, uh, for playwrights. There's not many places where you could go down with a play as a young fella, as I did at 21, and be given the local art centre for a week to put on your play and with a very favourable deal on the door so you could put it on and not go into huge debt. I don't know if that's even possible really anymore, but I was able to do that, and Billy, was, and Billy Roach was able to do that. Uh, you got people like Pierce Turner coming out of there, uh, the, the aforementioned Billy Roach, John Banville, Cobb Tobin was up the road, Larry Kerwin, Fanny Banville, like there's all sorts of people, and now we have people like Cat Hogan coming out of there. Uh, so it's just this little hive of academic and intellectual activity. Um, so I get down there as much as I can because I really want to keep my finger on that pulse. So um, we're down there every week. I stay at least one night, possibly two nights a week down down in Wexford and meet up with my friends and. What was it like growing up there then? Because I was reading amongst other things recently that your dad, as well as a lot of yeah. other things that he did, he did local historical tours. Yeah, my dad was great at local history and he put it into the syllabus in school, in, in primary school, before it was in the syllabus. So he kind of made a, made a little space for it and he wrote a local history book um, and he, used to, he thought it was very, very important. Uh, and especially from Wexford, because everyone came through Wexford. We were like the thoroughfare for invaders. Like they all came through. And I remember one year we did, uh, when I was in my dad's class in fifth class, so it would have been 11, uh, we were going into the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Now, up to that point, so this would have been 1976, uh, the St. Patrick's Day Parade was the scouts, the girl guides, and, you know, everyone just marched into some kind of woggle. But that's, well we are going to build a Viking longship and we're all going to dress as Vikings and we're going to put that on the back of a lorry and we're like, what? This is insane. This, But it it happened and I remember standing there on the back of this longship and the people of Wexford had been stunned. For this to happen in 1976 was uh, uh, unheard of and we were up there as Vikings and we knew even at the time this is one of those memories that you never, no one involved with this is ever going to lose this. Were you in full helmet brandishing swords? Oh, we were in full helmet. We were the whole thing. We had, I mean, 
it was a lot of sheepskin rugs because they were quite just a, lot of, a lot of rugs in Wexford. It, uh, so I, I, I would admit that perhaps some of the weaponry wasn't authentic. Mm-hmm. It may have been plastic, but still... A lot of tinfoil. A lot of tinfoil. Uh, I get guys coming up to me now in their 50s and saying, do you remember that... Uh, Remember that St. Patrick's Day parade? Were we on a, a long ship? And I said, yeah, we were. So it's kind of gone down in legend. And and also my dad, we built, uh, not my class, but a following class, built up a, a, a clown that ended up uh, on the Le Le Chow, uh, which we couldn't believe. I mean, if you're from Wexford and you have something you're connected with in the 1970s on the gay burn, that's like almost unbelievable to us. So every house in Wexford watched that show it was some art competition that, that they won, and yeah, so yeah, my dad was quite special. We had a, we had a, we had, he was as I said, he was big into his history, but we had kind of grenades and gas masks and things all over the place, and we liked to think that the grenades were live and we'd all be killed, which would be hilarious. But so we, yeah, he was he was very much involved in local history. He he was one of the founder members of the Heritage Park, um, and. So I was very much influenced by him, and uh, he was not a fiction writer, but he was a doctor of history, and he's, he's written some seminal works. So my mum then was a dramatist and an actress, and so I learned to write, to read, do my mother's lines. Uh, so she would be in a play, and she would have one part Rogers to the Sea, and then I would do all the other parts, age four. Now, if there's a better way to learn to read, I have not heard of it. I mean, that to me is like... Uh, the Heaney poem, poem peeling potatoes, you know, with your mother, and I was learning lines. So uh, that that had a huge influence on me. So when I got to school, I was already, you know, reading, reading the great plays, which I didn't understand, obviously, and uh, I couldn't understand why do these people not know how to read? You know, it's crazy, and I felt very haughty for about two weeks, and then everybody caught up, and it was an even playing field again. I'm going to bring us back up to date by talking about the Fell Twins because yes. you're just back from uh, what seemed like an endless tour of the United States promoting the book. Yeah. Um, why come back to the Artemis Fell world after what, yeah. seven years since the last yeah, time? Yeah, I, I had it. I I came when I finished Artemis Fell. I had this first chapter for the Fell Twins, but I just felt I wasn't enthusiastic about it. I'd been in that world for nearly twenty years. Uh, so I just wanted to take a break and I thought I'll take a break for maybe two years and then I'll come back um, so I just kept the chapter back I just held it back uh, and also I felt maybe there's no interest in that now maybe it's not the right time so I did a few other things I did a lot of theatre people like Brady Cash and Don Wichley and Ben Barnes so I really and then I collaborated with a few people and then one of the great joys of having a series that is successful is that you can approach people now they might not be interested but they will take the call they will answer the email and so i oliver jeffers picked up pj lynch picked up andrew Duncan, uh ben barnes don a lot of these people dustin the turkey answered the phone uh so a lot of these people said yes now some people didn't or never got back but uh it's one of the great joys to find a a nice collaborator and, and at my point in my career I really want to enjoy what I'm doing so even if it's going to produce a masterpiece I don't want to spend two years with someone that I don't get on with mm-hmm. so I'd rather um, 
hang out with, with friends and I think beautiful things come out of that in a different way and uh, so far so good. Let's let's talk about that then because you have in the interim done yeah. done a lot of stuff. You yeah. have thrown yourself into into theatre, which potentially maybe given yeah. your mum's background and given you yeah. being who you were at the age of four, was was that a passion? Was it something you always wanted yeah. to go? I'm going to take a few years and try this. I I started in theatre. Um, I did a few plays, uh, just in Wexford with the local group, and that was my trajectory. Uh, but then we went to Saudi Arabia. Um, to teach because we were saving up this was like uh, 1990 whatever so we were saving up the money to buy a house or to have deposit because back then you needed 10% which I believe you do again now uh, but there were no 100% mortgages so you had to get maybe 10,000 euro or pounds somewhere so we decided we'd go to Saudi Jackie and I and teach and save that money and put the deposit on a house and that's exactly what we did uh, but there isn't much call for drama in Saudi Arabia. No place. <laughs> so when I, we weren't colouring in the arms of children in T-shirts and textbooks, uh, I was writing a book, uh, which never got published, but it was my first attempt at a novel, um, which was kind of a serial killer thing set in Wexford. So it was like Father Ted, the serial killer. That would be the vibe. <laughs> Um, and it never really got anywhere, um, but I got the taste for writing novels. And so when we uh, extended our overseas stay and went to Italy, um, I kept writing. And then we went to Africa. And it was when we arrived in Africa that I really saw a story that I wanted to tell. And that was the story of this. Um, it was called The Psychotic Farm, which is sounds like... Essentially, the animals are a bit nuts, but that's not what it was about. It was an amazing place where volunteers um, tried to help street orphans who had psychotic problems by giving them an animal to mind. And I thought this was the most incredible thing I'd ever seen. I mean, obviously, if you live in Switzerland, you can swim with a dolphin in an institute, but if you live in North Africa, that's not really an option. So you could pet a turkey in a farm. And it had an amazing success rate. And these kids were transformed their lives. So I wanted to write a story about an Irish guy who's dropped into that, who has no idea what's going to feeling very sorry for himself because he missed the All-Ireland final uh, because his dad got a job with British Gas in Tunisia. So now he's there and then he starts to see what's actually going on. Now there's no huge life changing transformation because it's not you know uh, a Disney movie it's a real kid uh, but for like a few minutes he stops being selfish and uh, that was that was enough for me and that became Benny and Omar and then uh, and then Jackie was expecting Finn which such how long ago it was you know 22 years ago so we came home she came home with Finn and I came home uh, with a uh, manuscript, which is a lot easier to travel with. So, <laughs> so I came home three months later. Jackie had to go early because she couldn't fly after a certain time. And um, but that O'Brien Press picked up that book like straight away. It was when you find the voice. It took me six books to find it. But when you find the voice, it's it just it was in it was published within months. Tell me about being the children's laureate. And I ask that, I suppose, because you see people and uh, hear people talk about 
how differently they feel potentially about yeah. themselves or their work once they've been a laureate like that, once they've had yeah. that sort of platform for a couple of years. Do you think it changed you as a writer? I think it did. Um, first of all, I started that laureateship in a strange place emotionally because I kind of knew it was a great honour to do it, but I also begrudged doing anything for, you know, that was outside my own schedule. So I was kind of grumpy for the first few months going in and uh, people would suggest amazing stuff and I'd go, no, I don't have time for that. I don't have, I've got 10 minutes on Friday week. And, uh, but very quickly I realized these people are amazing. You know, they're giving everything to this job and they really care about kids reading. And, and that is one thing that most people involved in children's books have in common. They want to get kids reading. And mostly there's no ulterior motive there. It's just for the good of the children. I'm not used to that kind of goodness. In my, so I didn't know what to do. You know, it's, it's, like nice, it's like meeting a nice American for the first time. American people are so nice and genuine. And when an Irish person goes over there, you're like, where's the, where's the sarcasm? Where's the levels? What are you talking about? You mean it is a nice day? That's like you actually mean that? Uh, and it was like this with with CBI. They were just so nice and genuine and passionate and powerful and smart that very soon I started to, to kind of sheepishly come around to their way of thinking. And then I entered into it with, it with Gusto. We went all around the country and we met a lot of kids that maybe wouldn't be exposed to uh, writing or writers. And I learned a lot about inclusivity. We went to a halting site, for example, and we listened to the kids tell stories. So it slowly started being all about me. And then... The, and that was me doing that. I was making it all about me. And then slowly we realized, like my father had always said about education, it's child-centered. It's not all about you. It's about those people who are, who are looking up to you to tell them something about themselves, really. And uh, so I had a great time. And uh, I felt so good about that that I persuaded my friend PJ to take over, you know, take over from me that it was really worthwhile doing and uh, we're really lucky in this country in that we have a lot of people in the firing line to, to be the laureate. In the firing line is probably the wrong phrase. But there's so many great people. I mean, we could have laureates for the next hundred years just based on who we have now. Yeah. So, which means I probably won't get asked again. I would, I mean, I'd love to do it again. That's the, I suppose the best thing I can say about it. Before we finish, I have to ask you about your next book, despite the fact that it's not out until January 2020. Yeah. But I finished reading it on the train um, the other day. It's High Fire. It yeah. is a fantasy novel for adults. Yeah, you have to be careful how you say that. We do. Yeah. Tell us about Vern. Um, I was, Vern is inspired in a roundabout way by uh, the Loch Ness Monster. I was very intrigued by the idea that there could be this mythological creature that was very misunderstood. And my friend Andrew and the artist of the illegal books, Giovanni Rigano, went, went to Loch Ness uh, to look for the monster. And uh, they didn't find her, obviously. But I love the idea that there's a monster up there going, I wish these guys would just stop looking for me. Uh, and I thought, where could that happen? And I came across the legend of the Honey Island monster in Louisiana. And the Honey Island monster legend says, and it's insane, that 
in the 1940s, a circus train crashed into the Louisiana Bayou and a gorilla escaped and mated with an alligator and the Honey Island Monster was born. Right. And there are guys who dedicated their lives to tracking down the Honey Island Monster monster can you imagine if you were an actual monster and this was the backstory you'd been given how fed up you would be so you'd I, be less than happy you'd be less yeah. than happy so dad's a gorilla mom's an alligator and you know what am i so i thought what if this guy Vern, was the last dragon he's hiding out in louisiana swamps everything is great and then suddenly this legend springs up and he just detests that legend so i put a guy there um He's Lord Highfire of the Highfire Erie, but now he's just Wyvern or Vern for short. And he is not your typical noble dragon that you might be used to. He's more he's closer to maybe Homer Simpson the dragon. He likes his cable TV, likes his vodka. Yeah. So he's a little bit of a you know yeah, he's a little bit of a hooch, moonshine running guy, watch watching uh, listening to Flashdance soundtrack and I'm watching TV and I, I thought that might be an interesting character to to build on. So it's gone really well. We've got great reviews. Um, it's coming out in 2020, January. So I'm off on another interminable tour and then I'm retiring from that tour life. I think I've had enough. I find that impossible to believe. But nonetheless, <laughs> um, Owen Colford, thanks for having us in your lair. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for listening to the Book Show Extra podcast. You can find the rest of the Book Show podcasts on whatever platform you normally find yours. And don't forget, the Book Show on RTE Radio 1, Sunday nights at 7pm.